Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who do we have with us today? Today we are heading back in time to the 16th century, a subject we all love. And we're joined by Estelle Padog, who is a historian author and lecturer in early modern history at the New College of Humanities. Welcome Estelle. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Hi, so are you in London? How is lockdown going? Uh, It's going down pretty well for me. Uh, I am in London but I'm very lucky. Uh, I have a garden and I have a house so um, (laughs) you know I'm one of the lucky ones. And a pretty awesome cat, my I yeah, add. Yeah, two awesome cats. They drive me a bit crazy, but um, but now that we have more space, they're quite happy to leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, my cat won't leave me alone. It literally, it's just like, you are my puppet and I will make you dance all day long, begging for something, wanting something. He's getting far too used to having me in the house 24-7. Um, but you're here today to talk to us. Oh, it's amazing. Um I love Elizabeth the first and so do you. You are, you're going to fangirl a bit and we're quite willing to just let you. Um, but in particular, I've always found fascinating the idea of Elizabeth's image. Alina, let's get going. I think we should get going because by the way, I absolutely loved working on this. So let's, let's, uh, let's move forward with your research, which focuses on a completely different aspect of Elizabeth and how she was perceived by the French royal family and their ambassadors between 1558 and 1588. But before we delve into that, can you start us off and tell us a little bit about Elizabeth's early life? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, what's very interesting with uh, with Elizabeth is like her, um, yeah, her background when she was a princess. She's not your typical uh, type of princess. And, you know, I- I'm actually going to jump on something. You know, like when, when there was like... Um, Mary Stuart the movie, and trust me, I don't, I don't want to get into this too deeply. <laughs> but um, when there was Mary Stuart the movie, you know, there was like a, um, a, a line that said Mary um, had to fight. You know, she was born to fight or something. I think it was a, the, you know, the slogan in her name. And um, and Elizabeth was born to rule or something. Uh, hmm, problems. Yeah. 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 How we, angry did that make you? Very much. <laughs> I think I lost my shit all over internet (laughs) for such a long time, so I really don't want to do that with you. (laughs) Anyway, Elizabeth, she she had to fight, didn't she? Exactly. And she was a fighter. She's not your typical princess. Her mother was obviously executed when she was three years old. She was legal and bastard. She was taken away from court. She didn't have any clothes. I mean, like, you know, her... her, um, 
people were looking after her to write to the king and say, or um, to Thomas Cromwell and say, please send us money for, because the girl is growing. Like, I mean, what are you thinking? Like, you know, she, she's a little girl. She's going to grow and she's going to grow out of her clothes. So all of this, so she had a very quite rough and tough upbringing. Um, then obviously she would, she was uh, brought back to court and then things were a bit better, especially when there were, um, there, when there was Catherine Parr, um, at court. And there's almost a sense of a family, you know, with Mary, Edward, Elizabeth and Henry and Catherine Parr. So that was getting a bit better. But I would say also what's very interesting as well is that, so I don't know how much you know about Elizabeth as a princess and who was interested in her, but, um, when she was born, like, so a year after in 1534, um, Henry VIII was thinking like, oh, I, I really need to get a really good match for um, my little girl because she was the, because Mary was the good bastard and Elizabeth was the legitimate heir to the throne. And he thought about the third son of Francis I of France. So Henry, um, who was the second son, was married to Catherine of Medici in 1533. But he had another son, uh, Charles, and he was thinking, oh my God, I really you know, need to get those two together. And it obviously didn't work out. It kept. So, um, and I think it's, it's just very interesting because then when you move on with life, you see that Elizabeth, there was not that many offers, you know, um, marriage proposal. And I know, it, like, we, you know, it's a topic that we can discuss later. But as an, as an early princess, like, it, 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 it was quite, quite abnormal, you know, not to have so many propositions. And when you compare it with marriage to it, she was sent off, you know, at six years old, that she was going to be betrothed to uh, Francis, who was going to be, become Francis II. So all of that Elizabeth didn't have. So she was, from the very start, she was a very different type of princess, and I think that it made her a different queen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that kind of throwaway comment that she was just meant to rule and that was that uh, doesn't give her enough credit, but I don't think that film was too concerned with what actually happened um but (laughs) let's fast forward to where elizabeth uh, succeeds her sister mary on the throne in uh, 1558 how did europe view her accession to the throne um especially the view of the french and spanish and as philip ii was her brother-in-law wasn't he so um what what's her image like at this point okay so in 1558 when she became queen the reaction is a bit you know, like, shit, she's queen. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, because Mary obviously is vehemently Catholic, exactly. and along comes and, her and, Protestant and, sister. Exactly, and France and Spain are both Catholics. Um, Philip is like, hmm, are you thinking, oh, I should, you know, I should offer her, like, you know, um, the possibility of, of a marriage proposal, and he actually tried, he pursued her in 1559. He's not the nicest person either, is he? I think he was a bit of a bastard to marry, but I think he never wanted to marry Mary. Uh, so I think he was like, I can't be bothered to see this crazy older woman in fucking England where it's cold and rainy. I think he was like, I'm not really interested in that. And with Elizabeth of Valois, they had uh, two daughters and he was an extremely good dad to them. So for that part, I'm like, he just touched, he just yeah, he, he touches me a bit. In France, we had Henry II, who was ruling. And Henry II was like, is she going to be a problem? And, and Elizabeth started to be a bit of a problem when she was like, I want Calais back. Like, how can we make this happen? Yeah, because Calais was the very last bit of France we held. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, the last bit of, of England in, in French territory. 
and it had a massive, you know, um, kind of sim- symbolism behind mm. it. But I think the French were like, she was seen as a illegitimate queen, but they also had to realize that whatever they thought she was illegitimate or not, you know, like the daughter of Anne Boleyn and everything, um, she was queen of England. And so they realized quite quickly, especially the French, that they're going to have to deal with this. And she was smart enough to make sure that they would understand it quickly, that she was really, you know, she, she meant business. Yeah. And she wanted to be taken very seriously from very early stages. And I really like that about her. So talking more about the French family, the Red French royal family, um, in 1559, Henry II dies, which is only six months after Elizabeth's coronation. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the events and the reactions leading up to his death and what happens once he does die? Does this change things for England and Elizabeth? Yeah, okay. So it's a it's a massive turning point in um, Anglo-French history, I would say. So Henry II, we, we have to understand who he was. You know when people call um, Mary Tudor, Mary I of England, a bloody Mary? Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous when you look at what Henry II did in France with the persecutions of Protestants. So he should be called bloody Henry, right? But he's not. He's he's a hero, right? He's a hero. He's a Catholic hero. He was a very strong, you know, like everything you you, you expect from a king at that time during the Renaissance and during the 16th century. He's there. He's all of this. He's a strong monarch. Um, he's had a lot of children with his wife. Let's not even get into how they managed. He has mistresses, but he has a royal favorite who's Diane de Poitiers, who's the most beautiful woman in the kingdom, apparently. We went there, you know, whatever. But she had her boobs out all the time, so I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Men are easily pleased, so uh, you say no more. The women listening to this are going, yeah, uh, I understand. Yeah. To be honest, none of, we don't know if she was beautiful because none of them were looking at her face. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. Like, it just anyway. It just takes a set of boobs, and that's it. And they're yeah. sorted. You'll and ask them. You'll go. Well, what does she look like? Oh, she's got great tits. <laughs> but what does she look like? I don't know. Okay, so we, we... <laughs> <laughs> now now we've pissed off every man in the world. Someone we apologise, man. Well, I, I, I love it. <laughs> you see, very strong warrior. Um, you know, Catholic. He, he was, he was, he was a real, a real threat for England. He was a real threat. He was, he was a real power. So, um, when, uh, so basically what happened is there was a treaty of peace between, um, um, France and Spain and England, obviously, because England wasn't allied to uh, Spain at the time. And to make that peace treaty happen, um, there was the marriage of Philip II with Elizabeth of Valois, as I said, the eldest daughter of Henry II and Catherine of Medici. And to celebrate that, uh, celebrate the marriage, and there was another marriage as well, to celebrate all these kind of, um, you know, uh, peace treaty and everything, there was a tournament. And um, Henry II is going to be stupid enough to, you know, to do justing and, and to start, like, um, showing his strength to everyone, especially to Diane de Poitiers, probably trying to, you know, arouse her or something. And he's going to last against uh, Gabriel de Montgomery and he's going to get like a bit of the lens in his eye. And, um, and it's what's going to kill him, right? So for 10 days, he's going to be agonizing. Why I'm telling you about this? Because there was the news of his accident and it was not sure that he was going to die. So you have one of the best, if not the best, surgeon of the 16th century, Ambroise Paris, 
who was attending the king and trying to save his life. The primary was that it got into his eye and his eye, you know, and then there's the, the brain. Mm. So there was not much he could do um, about it because if you removed it, I mean, I wasn't there, so I'm pretty sure that it would have been a nightmare if you removed it and, and then he probably tried to remove it and to, you know, re- make sure there was no, you know, bleeding and stuff and obviously that didn't work out but one thing is that there was the news so between 10 days he was agonizing and he died um in 10th of july i think 1559 and between that between that time there was obviously the, the ambassadors reporting the events and so elizabeth heard that henry ii was badly injured and she obviously played the card. Oh my god! Oh my god! Why it's so awful? Like, <laughs> I could probably thought, oh yes, bitch. Uh, but she's like probably like thinking, oh my god, this is awful. I wish I was myself a surgeon. I could save his life. Uh, as if I mean. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but then she realized, you know, she realized that France was like becoming weak. There was another problem. So then there's a death of Henry II, and it's where we have this massive, massive sh- shift, you know, in Anglo-French relations because his eldest son, uh, Francis II, became king. He was about 16, and he was married to Mary Stuart. When you have someone who uh, is married to someone who had always said in her life that you are not the rightful heir to the throne she was. That all of this, you, you're starting to think, shit, those two are going to be a problem. And she was right. They were going to be a problem. They were a problem for 18 months. And this is where we have this shift because the one thing is that having someone who kept saying, I'm the rightful queen and you're not, it obviously created creating problems. So they were using the titles of, um, you know, King of England and the Queen of England. So Francis II and Mary Street were doing, were doing that. And Elizabeth's like, drop it, drop the titles, drop the titles. They were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then they were using the core of arms as well, the English core of arms. And she was like, you have to drop it if you, if you want to have good relations with this country, which is in your best interest, drop that shit. And obviously it's when it started like all the animosity between Mary Street and Elizabeth. It's when I think, in my opinion, it's where Elizabeth, that moment, those, those 18 months is when she can't forgive her. She stayed more calm than I'd have stayed calm. I'd have been like marching somewhere with an army going, take it down. <laughs> well, the thing is like England was not in a very uh, position, of, in a position of power at that time. Like, I mean, like you have to understand, like they'd just been to war for another country. They had no business to go to war against, against France. Mary just did it to, to support Philip II. Yeah. It was absolutely a waste of English money, English soldiers and everything. So, but obviously she was going to do all the shit in 1562 and then later on like trying to help the Huguenots and, and really trying to create more problems for France because what she knew is that as long as they had problems in their own countries with the religious civil wars, uh, England didn't have to, to fear France. Yeah. I mean, so obviously, because this is a rule, uh, world ruled by men, uh, they look at Elizabeth and they just see a uterus, uh, basically. They're saying like, <laughs> all they really care about... Um, yeah is who's going to bag her and who's going to be able to manipulate her um, as yeah, queen and which man can they shove under her nose um, to yeah. try and gain power over her. Um, so this go, how long does this go on for and how desperately do the French try and, like, shove a man in front of her? That's, I think that's most... When you really think about it, I think that's one of the most fascinating part of um, 
you know, Elizabeth's reign, especially when you come with the French. So it all started. Um, so, but, but you know, when you say men trying to, trying to, is it men or is it Catherine of Medici? Yeah, so this is a point. It, for me, it's more uh, another woman who was extremely powerful, but in a different way. Very important. She's like have three, you know, well, I'm not counting obviously Francis the second because obviously he's going to die in, um, in December 1560. But it, it, she, she's like have three sons. There's another realm, you know, just across the channel. One woman, one queen. Easy, right? Easy match. And mm. then my sons are going to be king of France and king of England. Yeah, because importantly, well, more than happen. anything, not yes. so much Elizabeth and what she does and manipulating her. But exactly. if you can get in on the whole air action and produce the air to the oh English throne. And manage the dynasty that you're creating. You have to think that at that time, the most powerful country in Europe, is not France or England, it's Spain. And they have also the Holy Roman Empire. So though England and France are going to want to challenge that. Catherine's mind is like, this is how we're going to do it. And so it all started, um, it's, so Charles, it started with Charles IX. So as I said, Francis II is going to die um, in December 1560. And then it's going to be Charles, who's going to become Charles IX. And nine years old. So, um, obviously it's perfect for Catherine. She's like, I'm gonna take the, I'm gonna take over this. Thank you very much, sweetheart. Um, and it's gonna, the, the regency, the co-regency that she's gonna have, because she's never gonna be officially the regent, but she's more or less the regent. Uh, it lasted until 1563. And then in 1564, she's like, so the, the her is like 13 years old. 14, like 13, 14. And she's like, oh, um, here, um, let me present you to Elizabeth and offer you to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is like, is that a joke? I mean, he's 13. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, I mean, thanks. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 29. Like, uh, so Catherine tries in 1564 and she tries quite aggressively. She's actually extremely annoyed with her ambassador, Paul de Foix, at uh, that time. And she's like, and he's like, I really want to come back to France. And she's like, no, mate, you will come back once you have managed to get this marriage happen. Apart from that, you, you know, you're going to stay put and you're going to make it work. He obviously doesn't make it work. And she tries lots of tactics. She's like, think about it. Think about, you know, your future, the future of your dynasty. Um, and Elizabeth is like, I'm not marrying your son. Forget about it. So then she's going to try again in 1569 when Charles is older. And bear in mind, Charles doesn't have a thing saying this. Okay? He's like just doing what mommy wants. Mm. And uh, Elizabeth still is like, no. Um, and now she's finding other arguments. He's Catholic. It's going to create problems in my country, blah, 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 blah. Also, like, there was the Northern Rebellion. So she was like, I'm not, I can't really risk you know, it's not a good time for me to to um to marry a Catholic king. It's not it's not what I want to do. So Catherine is gonna drop that and then fifteen seventy she's gonna say, Okay, but what about my second son? Because Henry was gonna become Henry the Third, so he was Henry Duke of Anjou. And she was like, He's a hottie. I mean, girls, he's hot. And she <laughs> was like, Mmm, he's quite cute. And he was. And <laughs> And the thing is, like, Elizabeth doesn't say no, really. Like, she still says, oh, he's young, and there's still the Catholic problem. But it's going to be Henry who's going to say, I'm not marrying this public 
before it basically stopped. It didn't happen. And right after there was Francis, who was Duke of Alençon at that time. And then I don't understand how it lasted so long because it, it started in 1571. And it ended... So, all historians will tell you, or most historians will tell you, it ended in 1581. You know, it's what we discuss. But actually, when you go on in your in the French archives, you see that they're still talking about that. So um, Catherine um, is still talking about it up to 1583. And obviously, there's no, you know, no word is that she's going to say yes. But she managed to make them believe for over, I mean, 10 years that it was going to happen. And then you think, how thick were they? And when you think about it, Francis, who became Duke of Anjou in 1576, um, he never married. I feel so bad for the guy. I feel really sorry for him. I mean, he was waiting so long for Elizabeth. And then <laughs> then, then what happens? I mean, he doesn't end up with But is he the one prancing round in a dress in the film? Yeah, but he wasn't like... You, you, okay. <laughs> is that not accurate? <laughs> no, but something. Well, I'm not saying that they were not dressing. So Henry, Henry III, um, and probably Francis, I'm not sure about Francis actually, but, um, he loved dressing up and stuff like that. We, he, he loved theatres, right? So, you mm. know, it was, not, it was not surprising for men to dress up as women, you know, at, at that time. You know, I mean, in terms of, uh, for, for, um, play purposes. It was not that something that surprising, uh, because women were not allowed to, to play their own role, right? So, I don't think there's a problem with that. Like, I mean, I, I don't think that was a problem. I think Francis, um, well, there's a few things. In 1571, it's really Catherine de' Medici who wants that. Then we have some problems, in, and we'll discuss that later, but we have diplomatic problems. Then uh, what happened is that um, he still, and then it's more or less Francis who's hoping, I think he just gets on with Elizabeth because he's going to meet her, he's going to meet with her twice, and it's, he's the only suitor that she's really going to consider, right? He's like, I think they get on. He's not handsome though, and I think Elizabeth is a bit vain. I love her for that. It's fine. I, I have no problem with that. Uh, but she's she's a bit vain, and she's like, he's not hot enough for me. But I quite like him. I quite enjoy his company. He's quite funny. Um, we get on well, and he's a good at life. You know, he he's a Catholic, but he doesn't have anything against Protestants. He understands, you know, tolerance and everything. So yeah. she's like, I like this guy, and it's easy then to make him believe. Yeah, my, you know, he kind of like. If I had to choose one, it would be you. But in a hurry, like, I don't want to share my fucking power with anyone. So, <laughs> I mean, she's not going to tell him that. And also what really helps her is that having these kind of discussions, marriage discussions, for so, so long with France, it meant that she never had to fear a problem with France. She never had to fear that France would turn their backs on her because they really wanted to get an alliance and a, a, a dynastic alliance. So she was also like protected by that. And I think that that is so clever of her. So we all know that Elizabeth faced problems with uh, her legitimacy, which was obviously challenged quite a lot. Um, what kind of hurdles did she have to face and how was her image uh, affected? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, obviously, like, you know, when, when all of you, well, not all of Europe, but most of Europe, and like when most, most your counterparts think that, you know, you know, the, the rightful hair, uh, the rightful queen of England, it's, it's kind of problematic. <laughs> and the biggest hurdle for her is obviously what Mary Stuart, you know, as a threat to her crown and as a threat to the stability of a realm. Now you have some historians who are going to argue that it's not Mary Stuart's on her own. And I agree with that. I mean, I think that Mary Stuart is also used, you know, by others and mostly the Gizzes, um, to do their dirty work and everything. But when you think about it, it, she, she's always kind of, she has a different, they perceive her differently until they realize that she's actually quite a strong queen. So, you know, Elizabeth was really smart. And even when you look at her speeches and the way she's going to address the parliament, there's a shift around 1566, 1567. You know, you can see that now she's 35, 36, and she won't take shit. You know, like, she's like, um. I'm done with your shit, guys. You know, or she's 34 or something. But you know what I mean? It's like that that kind of age. And and then the real shit where she becomes like, used to be a queen. And also like, you know, she's, people can see that she's been ruling for quite a long time. So, you know, years and years passing by and then you're like, okay, she's still on the throne. She's still the one we have to deal with. So, yeah, so I think that the perception of her is like, she become, she became stronger and stronger, basically. Yeah, we hear this um, warrior queen a lot, don't we? Can you explain a bit more about how that comes about? Well, the warrior queen, so the warrior queen comes really, it's attached to Gloriana. Um, You know, like when you think about Elizabeth I, you think about the Virgin Queen and Gloriana. And two of them are like, you know, she she never called herself like this. She never, you know, tried to push that uh, herself. Obviously, she's gonna she's she's gonna be part of the propaganda later on, but it was not her idea. If you see what I mean, like she didn't create it. She was never like I'm the Virgin Queen of England. You know, respect me for this. Never, or I'm the Gloria of England. You know, it came later on. And um, for the Warrior Queen, it's basically from 1588. You know, it's when like there's a shift with the victory over the Spanish Armada. And when people in all Europe see Elizabeth as a strong monarch. Also, what we need to know is that by remaining single, Elizabeth was not just Queen of England. She was Queen and King of England. She was the first female King of England. And... And she knew that. So she knew how to, you know, you know, rhetoric, the, the, the way she was writing her speeches. There's this kind of warlike 
rhetoric. And I, I've worked a lot on this, um, you know, for academic purposes and academic publications. And it is very striking that she's using the same words than, you know, Henry III or Philip II or, you know, um, other kings because she's seeing herself as their equal. She's not a queen. A queen is usually the wife of another king. Yeah. Right? She's not a queen. She's a female king. And she, and this is why she's using more and more the, you know, the warlike rhetoric. And this is where this warrior queen, this strong English warrior queen comes from. We've got some kind of negative views of Elizabeth though. I mean, quite negative when we talk about the St. Bartholomew Day's massacre. I mean, how did that impact her image? So the, the massacre, the, the St. Bartholomew's Day's massacre. So it's more or less like, um, she was shocked, right? I mean, it's in France, it happened in France on the, tw- um, the night between the 23rd of August and 24th of August, uh, 1572. Uh, and it happened in Paris where, um, Protestants was, were massacred by Catholic. Well, I'm, I'm really like, you know, um, simplifying it. Um, massacred by Catholics, um, the day, uh, after the marriage between, uh, Henri de Navarre, who's going to become Henry the Fourth. Uh, fourth and um Marguerite um Marguerite of Valois was the daughter of Catherine of Medici and Henry II. And what people uh, and I've tried to change that in my book actually um thought it was that um Elizabeth was shocked with the massacre. And yes, in a way she was. At the same time she she obviously wanted to make a big deal out of it. She wanted to be like, oh I'm shocked and it's unacceptable. But what she was really shocked was not so much the massacre in Paris, but the fact that it's spread out like all around France. So then you had massacres in La Rochelle, you had massacres in in the, in the Protestant strongholds, and she was like, and then she started blaming the French royal family, saying, "Why aren't you preventing that? Why are you letting all these French Protestants being killed?" Um, and for the French royal family, I think the, the, the shift here that happened was they could not afford to lose the alliance with England. So the French, the French royal family didn't want Elizabeth to be, you know, I, I never want to, to be your ally again because the way you treat Protestants. So they were trying to maintain and preserve, um, this alliance. And for Elizabeth, it gave her like the upper hand because then she was the one deciding on what terms the alliance, the diplomatic alliance, you know, should be. And the French have basically to do what she asked or, you know, to play by our rules more. And it's where in 1572, I would say there's a shift while is a stronger and more established monarch that you don't want to mess with. So, but by 1584, the relationship with France is not as strong as it was, isn't it? Um, and what's happened to cause such fractures, especially between 1584 and 1588? Okay, so okay, so I think that's a, that's very um, interesting. I, I I think by it's a bit complicated because in 1584, so we have uh, Francis uh, of Anjou who died, and obviously it means that there's no longer a possibility for having marriage negotiations. So Catherine of Medici is starting to be more aggressive with Elizabeth. She doesn't need her anymore. You see what I mean? Like she's like, I, I don't have to pretend. I don't have to make efforts anymore. Yeah. Um, but Henry the Third, who was king, by 1584, he, from 1584 to 1587, there are like 
more and more tensions between France and England, mostly because um, Elizabeth is still supporting, you know, the Huguenots in France. And because uh, Henry III really saw Elizabeth as a strong warrior queen, but also as a pirate queen, because she kept sending her privateers and Francis uh, Drake, Sir Francis Drake, against the, you know, the French. So the, the tension is growing, they're, they're starting arguing, but by 1587, he realised that her, his real enemy was not Elizabeth, but, but the Guises. And then you have a secret friendship between Elizabeth and, and, and Henry III. And this is a big shift here in, because they had to keep it secret because Catherine could not stand Elizabeth by that time. And also because he couldn't be perceived as, you know, as a Protestant lover. I don't know how to say that, but like, he's obviously a strong Catholic king and he couldn't be seen as having a strong alliance with the Protestant queen. Yeah, it didn't make any sense at that time. So we have like this a very complicated, and tense period from 1584 to 1588 and um, even 1589 because like it's when Henry III died and Elizabeth is quite I think she saw it coming though she saw it coming and I think she tried to warn him so many times about his real enemies and he took such a long time to open his eyes so um, but it's a very it's a very complicated um, um, period because it, it it's no longer clear what's going on. It's a very complex and almost cloudy kind of um, diplomatic relations. We are all dying to ask you, and I know Alex is dying to ask you, and I don't know why I didn't give Alex this question. Um, so I'm really sorry for, for nicking. It's just, it's just how it's worked out. But Mary Stewart, I mean, we all want to know, how was her execution perceived? I mean, like, just, it's incredible. Well, you, you mean by the French, like yeah, yeah. 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 So that, I think that's why you know it shocked me. So obviously, it, everyone was shocked. So it, I think Catherine, Catherine was Catherine de Medici was completely appalled. Like she could not believe it. She could not believe it had happened. She wrote to Elizabeth telling her, you think you're above us, like you, do you think you're what, queen of queens, like queens, queen of kings, like over everyone else. Um, so she's completely appalled. The French in Paris, the Paris, there was a, a funeral which was organized. Everyone is mourning because obviously she was still half French, right? And she, she had been queen of France. So people were kind of attached to that. And she comes yeah. from a very strong family, like the Guises are a strong French uh, family, noble family. So everyone is mourning. And, and then you think about Henry III. It's 1587. And he's shocked, but I don't think he wants to blame Elizabeth. I think he's like, he's almost thinking, you know what, you didn't have a choice. And he's thinking that because he does, he, he's not going to have a choice with what's well. You can argue he had a choice with what's going to happen next in 1588 with the, um, Mary uncle, like the Gizzes, but, um, oh, cousin, I mean, the Gizzes, where he's basically going to, um, order the assassination of Henri de Guise. But he knows that the Gizzes, that was Mary, Henry, and Charles the Cardinal, that they were no way they would have stopped until they got what they wanted. And what did they want? Well, really simple. To put it in simple, the Guises wanted to be king of France and they wanted Mary Stuart to be king of England, uh, queen of England. 
and say it meant that they would have ruled a huge part of Europe. And so when you think like that, then you understand why there was this secret friendship between a Catholic king, Henry III, and a Protestant queen, Elizabeth of England. All right. I want to know this famous speech in 1588, which just fits in with this image of our virgin queen. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. Did she actually say this? In my opinion, yes. Good. Done. Absolutely. Absolutely no doubt. I have no doubt. I have no doubt because... um, I agree with like a big historians in my field. Like I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm talking about historians who've spent their lives, they, they have devoted their lives to the reign of Elizabeth. So Stephen May, um, you know, um, Janet Green and uh, Carol Levin. And we have to, to think about it. Like, first of all, why do I believe she, like, and then, and then there's my own research though, where I'm more and more confident that she said it. I'm more and more confident that she said it because she said similar things in private audiences with the French ambassadors. The way she was like, um, discussing, um, her role authority with French ambassadors, you can see that she takes herself very seriously. So, you know, she said that she was a rock. She said she was from the race of lion. She said, you know, that, um, she said that she was uh, unequal to the French king. So all of that meant that it's quite clear, it's quite, it's strongly possible that she's actually said those words. And then another thing that I found absolutely fascinating. So these, you know, words that you just pronounced were said or apparently said, um, it is Tilbury speech on the 9th August 1588. In May 1588, in Chartres, when um, Henry III of France had to flee Paris because it was besieged by the Guises, he fled to Chartres and he gave a speech where he said, I have the stomach and a king um, of, like any of my predecessors. So he was saying he had... He, Oh, so it's in French. So he said he had the, 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 the courage, right? The, so it's the stomach, right? Like, um, um, and the, and the heart, um, like any of the, of the, of his predecessors. So he was like, like any of the French kings. What I know is that this speech was then printed and it was spread out in France. This speech was then translated and was printed out in England. What's so fascinating about this speech is that the translation, I cannot find those words in the translation. It's like they took out this bit from the French version. And what's interesting is that obviously we know that if it was printed in France, some copies must, you know, like you have to imagine that obviously we, we're not like today, you know, when with the news and everything going everywhere all the time, but it was still very much spreading. So it it must have gone to England, and Elizabeth must have seen it. And I'm not saying she she stole it. I'm saying that she saw in this the opportunity to use the rhetoric of a king. Yeah, and she was king of England. So for me, it just it just add to the evidence that she said it. Then I also because my questions, you know, they ask me this question and then I ask them a, a question and I'm gonna ask you the question and, and I hope we, we can have a discussion on that. So we have different speeches, right? We have different types of 
of, of sources, all sources are problematic. That's the first thing that you that you learn when you do a history degree is that all the sources are problematic. They're all valuable in certain ways. You just have to explain to your audience, to your readers, the limitations of your sources and what you can do with them. But I'm going to give you a few examples. With speeches like the of, of kings and queens, we have three different types. We have the one we found in archives, we have the manuscripts, you know, and we have like the scribbles of the king or queen. So Elizabeth wrote some of her speeches, Henry III did as well, okay? That That is kind of normal. We have that. We have some of those. Then we have the version of, so sometimes you have the same version of a speech that is completely, di- not completely, but it's quite different. So you have the, the, the version of the, the manuscript that was written by the king or queen. Then you have maybe an advisor who wrote that speech or, you know, made some comments or, you know, or you have someone who was in the audience, you know, when they gave the speech and took notes and were like, then printed it. And then you have the printed version of the speech that was, you know, spread out in the country and beyond. And then ask my students, which one is the, you know, which one is the truth? The one that was written by the king, the one that was written by the witness in the audience, or the one that was printed by the, with the government approval? Which one is the tr- the true one? Which one should you have a look at it? Yeah, and then it's a good point. It's it is a good point because like, and then they're like, oh, uh, uh, oh, the one that they wrote down, right? And then I said, no. For example, when I give a lecture and I write down all my words, I don't read my words. I change my words. Mm. So you might have like when you take notes, you might have more of what I am actually saying than my own notes. Because on the day I'm gonna change, I'm gonna choose to tell you another story that I that I wrote down. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> uh, and then if I printed it, you know, if if a student was absent, uh, absent, and then it's like, oh, can you help? Can you send me your notes? I'm only because you're gonna type out something else. Do you see what I mean? I'm gonna try to make it clearer. Blah. Do you see? So in a way, the fact that we had a witness writing this speech, even if it was, you know, printed later on in 1620s. It still, it doesn't mean that it's not accurate. It doesn't mean that it was not the truth. That is completely bullshit when students are dismissing that source saying, oh, it's not Elizabeth's words. Of course it is. When you look at my students' notes, you know, they are revising. I hope you are revising, even if it's really hard. You can, you're going to get there. You know what? Sorry. (laughs) Um, You know, when you, when they're going to look at their notes and it's what I've said, they are my words. Talking about your notes, sorry to cut you off there, apologies for that, but this is the right time, I think, for us to ask you about your actual sources and where you got them from. Yeah. So, so I look, so from, from my book, for, for, so for my last book on Elizabeth I of England through Valois eyes, so Valois being the French dynasty, um, I looked at the French ambassador's letters. Uh, some were printed sources in the 19th century. So we had like historians, you know, like, or, you know, they weren't, I don't think they were called historians at that time, but you see what I mean? We were like, um, transcribing and, and then typed everything and, and it was published. And so there were printed sources and obviously, uh, the manuscripts have went through the manuscripts, um, the real letters of these ambassadors as well. And I went through Catherine of Medici's letters, Francis II's letters, Mary Stewart's, letters it was really hard uh, especially the ones who are in, in French archives there's lots of secret correspondence in the French archives um, you had Charles IX's letters and Henry III's 
Latin. So different royal families, the French ambassadors. And I found them all in um, Bibliothèque Nationale de France. And I went, you know, one by one. It's, it's, it was quite a daunting process in a way because, you know, you have to go through one letter after one letter. But it was amazing. I love doing research so much. I love being in an archive. Give me an archive and I'll be the happiest person in the world. <laughs> please give us our archives back, please. Yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's what I miss the most. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about Elizabeth and her image, and especially from the point of view of the French royal family. I think we're so uh, wrapped up in the Tudors on this side of the channel that we don't necessarily think of all the concurrent stuff that's going on in France at the same time as well and how it all interacts with our history. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. Yeah, we have to get you back on. Maybe you can come on and do a, French, a rundown of lunatics in French royal history for us or something fun like that. Well, I would, I would love to do more. You know, I do, I, I, I'm, my next project is on royal mistresses, so I would love to do more for that. Oh, yeah. Let's oh my do that. Gosh. Yeah, French that royal one. mistresses, right? Yeah, or, yeah. Do, do you've you know got a pool of to thousands get... to choose from. <laughs> We need to get Estelle onto uh, onto our pub night for definite. Yes, we need definite. To, we need to create one just for you to come oh, yeah, on but, and no, give a good argument. No, yes. but you know what? The French royal mistresses. I'm, I'm trying to look at the ones that were not that well known. You see what I mean? I'm trying to to get into the lives of the the ones that were not well known. Bloody hell! They were so scandalous. I love them. I love them. Some of them were pure bitches. And oh, my God. I love, love them. Not, not, I'm not a bitch myself, but I love it. I just love it's it. It's exciting, fun. isn't it, it's to write exciting. about? You don't want to be bored, you know? You want to be, like, fucking excited when you write history. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Amazing. Thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we'll see you on another podcast and or on our... She's definitely coming down the pub. She's definitely coming down the Mary Rose to join us for a drink. Honestly, thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Okay, it's pretty much the weekend now. Join us tonight down the pub where we will be debating uh, almost exclusively with female historians, the most badass woman in history. I think Holmes and Dyer, our judges, are slightly terrified. Uh, then tomorrow we have uh, oral history for you in the shape of uh, Susan Luz, who's going to talk about the Peace Corps, being a reservist uh, and serving in Iraq and basically a lifetime of public service. Uh, she is quite inspirational, girls, um, so make sure you listen to that. Uh, tomorrow afternoon we bring you dr elena yanagar uh, who is awesome you'll hear her down the pub tonight but she's done a medieval q a for you uh, not for the kids that one some adult content we were really glad that you didn't just bombard her with questions about famous women and what she mostly talks about is what life was like for women in the medieval period which is great and then on sunday the sharp boys are back it's sharps reunion part two we have all of the chosen men reunited for the first time i think in about 14 years uh, talking about what it was like to film the show, the Napoleonic history, and they're even going to sing you a song as well. So make sure you don't miss it. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.